Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I was originally going to present this as a two-part episode, but when I started putting it all together, I realized I needed to do it all at once and not break it up. I'm not really sure how this is going to turn out, but it should be a fun ride. I'm sure you've seen or experienced things on the internet suggesting that chiropractic is a pseudoscientific cult based on its origins. In fact, that's almost exactly what Wikipedia says about chiropractic. To quote Wikipedia exactly, chiropractic is a form of alternative medicine concerned with the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of musculoskeletal disorders of the musculoskeletal system, especially of the spine. It has esoteric origins and is based on several pseudoscientific ideas. Thank you very much. The assumption seems to be that if the origins are less than perfect, then nothing redeemable can come from it. If that's true, then why is that not the criteria for evaluating allopathic medicine as well? Considering the times we live in, I think it would serve us well to be knowledgeable and informed regarding the history of medicine. So without any further ado, let's begin with Hippocrates. Hippocrates is often referred to as the father of modern medicine, but what was it that earned him this dubious distinction? I read to you from Sherwin B. Newland, professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine. Quote, though Hippocrates is commonly called the father of medicine, very little is known about him beyond his birthplace on the island of Kaz around 460 BC. His name was given to a new form of healing that arose during the golden age of Greece. The fundamentals of the new medicine were its separation from reliance on religion or superstition for diagnosis or cure, the importance of keen observation of the sick, and the writing of books that recorded the details of diseases for future generations to study, an ethical code that spelled out the obligations of physicians to their patients and to one another, and the importance of teaching each new generation of doctors the knowledge that had been acquired by their predecessors. The underlying philosophy of the Hippocratic physicians was that disease involves a patient's entire body and mind, so that therapy must be directed to the whole context of the patient's life situation rather than some small part of it. The Hippocratic documents are thought to be the remains of a library found on the island of Kaz, and they consist of 70 different texts. They stand out for their clarity of thought, high moral message, and scientific objectivity. The most famous of its aphorisms is that, quote, Life is short, the art is long, opportunity is fleeting, experience is delusive, and judgment is difficult, end quote. So what did Hippocratic medicine offer that had not come before? The first is that diseases are events that happen within the entire life of an individual. It also offered the concept of the four humors and the idea that balance must be maintained between them. The four humors are blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. When these are out of balance, the person is labeled as being sanguine, choleric, melancholic, or phlegmatic, terms that are still used today in scholarly circles to describe a person's temperament. While the understanding of what makes a person sick might leave something to be desired, the greatest accomplishment of the Hippocratic school was its code of ethics. These ethics are expressed in the great oath of Hippocrates. In taking this oath, the physician promised not to help anyone commit suicide, facilitate abortions, or cut for bladder stones. If there's one area where modern medicine has departed most from the Hippocratic medicine, it would be in its ethical code, or, or its lack thereof. In 1989, only 50% of medical schools had a version of the Hippocratic Oath, and only 2% gave it in its original form. 
More recently, only 25% of medical doctors surveyed said the Hippocratic Oath had any bearing on how they practice. The most popular revision of the code comes from 1964 from Dr. Louis Lasagna, a physician at Johns Hopkins University. His nuanced approach to euthanasia states, quote, It may be within my power to take a life. This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. Above all, I must not play at God, end quote. This is a clear departure from the ethic code maintained by the Hippocratic School. So what modern concepts are missing from the Hippocratic Oath? First, honoring patients' preferences, sharing medical information with patients, avoiding conflicts of interest such as profiting by ordering unnecessary tests or treatments, protecting patients who enroll in research studies, treating all patients equally regardless of ability to pay, social class, education, race, or suspicion of criminality, avoiding the practice of medicine while impaired due to physical or psychological disease. And let me add one more, truly informed consent which demands that the doctor themselves must remain knowledgeable of the most current information. Hippocrates was born around 460 BC, and following him was Galen, born in 130 AD, during the time of the Roman Empire. Again, I will read from Newland. Newland states, Galen, born in 130 AD in Asia Minor, based his career on the notion that disease can be understood only if physicians know how the body works. He carried out experiments and gave extremely popular public lectures using vivisected animals throughout his life, relentlessly pursuing his goal of learning anatomy and physiology. Galen's discoveries in such areas as nerve and muscle action, respiration, speech, and urinary excretion established his reputation throughout the Roman Empire, as did his extraordinary skill as personal physician to Emperor Marcus Aurelius. A vain and boastful man, Galen convinced the world that the 22 thick volumes of his writings contained all the medical knowledge that would ever be discovered. Such was his overwhelming influence that his teachings prevailed virtually unchanged until the 16th century, when a daring few began to point out certain errors he had made, paving the way for a renewal of research. The incredible thing about Galen is that he died in 201 AD and left a body of writings that his followers deemed so conclusive that it became the standard of medicine for the next 1,300 years. Indeed, for 1,300 years, to know medicine was to know Galen. It remained unchanged and unchallenged. The most important contribution that Galen had to offer was his effort to determine actual anatomical and physiological function, but this came at an enormous expense, or rather, I should say, a flaw. In his early career, Galen spent time as surgeon to the gladiators in both Rome and Pergamon. This offered him his only opportunity to observe human anatomy and what were essentially vivisected humans. He later became physician to Marcus Aurelius, and during this time, he attempted to catalog human anatomy based on animal dissections, which led to many incorrect conclusions. These errors were not discovered for 1,300 years. There are two strange things about Galen. The first is that he wrote about the importance of wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance, even though he personally embodied none of those virtues. The other is that when his reputation was overthrown, it was by the same experimental methods he had so frequently espoused. Andreas Vesalius led to the Renaissance of medicine, again, according to Newland. Quote, when Andreas Vesalius, a Flemish medical student at the University of Padua during the late Renaissance, began to dissect human cadavers with meticulous care, he soon came to realize that some of the structures 
about which Galen had written were either incorrectly described or existed only in animals. Enlisting the aid of a young apprentice of Titian, Stefan van Kalker, he published a magnificently illustrated volume in 1543, when he was 28 years old, De Humani Corpus Fabrica, whose title is best translated as On the Workings of the Human Body. By exposing Galen's errors and adding many new findings, this book clarified the understanding of anatomy and function in ways never previously imagined and began to loosen the ancient icon's stifling hold on medical thought. Being both contentious and aggressively ambitious, Vesalius did not shrink from attacking Galenic theory at every opportunity, which earned him as many enemies as disciples, subverted his career, and eventually resulted in his ignominious death." End quote. The story of Vesalius is less about the man and more about the book he wrote. De Humani Corpus Fabrica on the Workings of the Human Body. Vesalius was much like Galen in personality, vain and contentious. As he was allowed to dissect human bodies, he immediately became aware of Galen's errors. He took great pleasure in conducting public lectures where he would prove to his audience how the body was really constructed and functioned to prove that he knew more than Galen. In 1543, he published his textbook, exposing and correcting all of Galen's errors. As you might expect, the scientific community rejected his book for the simple fact that he refuted Galen without giving any attention to whether or not he was right. Vesalius burned every bridge to the scientific community and destroyed all of his papers. He left and became personal physician to Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. When the emperor abdicated the throne, Philip II assumed the throne. Vesalius convinced him to let him go on a pilgrimage, and on the return voyage, Vesalius died in a shipwreck. The most important thing Vesalius left to the world was the importance of skepticism, the idea that nothing should be believed that cannot be personally verified. William Harvey discovered blood circulation. Again from Newland, we read, quote, Like Andreas Vesalius, the Englishman William Harvey studied medicine at the University of Padua, where he absorbed the spirit of free inquiry and intellectual independence that characterized the Italian universities during the Renaissance. Being of a restless and skeptical nature, he was dissatisfied with the old Galenic notion that organs receive their supply of nutrition by a process of drenching in which blood ebbs and flows to them through large veins originating in the liver, the site at which it was thought to be manufactured anew to fill the needs of each outpouring. Harvey conceived a series of ingenious experiments and measurements that demonstrated the heart's function as a pump, which, as he described in, his, in it in 1628, ensures that the blood in the animal body moves around in a circle continuously. Generally considered to be the greatest contribution ever made to the art of healing, Harvey's discovery of the circulation was the product of the curiosity and wide-ranging thought that characterized the scientific revolution of the glorious 17th century, during which the likes of Galileo, Newton, Van Leeuwenhoek, Halley, Descartes, Bacon, Hooke, and Bernoulli were at work to establish the basis of modern observational and experimental research. If you've ever had a severe cut, you've observed how the blood oozed out seemingly from nowhere and everywhere all at once. Prior to Harvey, this is how scientists believed blood to move through the body, a sort of ebb and flow where blood just oozed from one place to another. Harvey recognized the structure of the heart along with the difference between arteries and veins. It was previously believed that blood flowed to and from the liver. By studying the anatomy, Harvey came to the conclusion that disease could arise from dysfunction in the normal function of this anatomy. Giovanni Morgagni was born in 1682 
and he discovered appendicitis, which it was easily recognized had nothing to do with humors. In this way, it was nearly 2,000 years after Hippocrates before the concept of humors was disproven. Again, we read from Newland, quote, The Hippocratic thesis that illness originates in an entire person rather than an organ proved to be an inhibiting factor in discovery until the work of one man demonstrated that virtually every symptom can be shown to arise from some specific pathological process in a particular structure of the body. In describing the 700 autopsies analyzed in his landmark three-volume work on the seats and causes of disease as indicated by anatomy, Giovanni Morgagni correlated hundreds of symptoms to their causes and abnormalities of one or another organ. No longer would it be acceptable to indict such vague and generalized factors as atmospheric influences, humoral imbalances, or generalized badness as the causative factors in disease. Following the work of Morgagni, the focus of medical investigation became centered on the autopsy and the tracing of what he called the cries of the suffering organs directly to their sources. Morgagni worked with Valsalva, and together they dissected over 700 cadavers with detailed case studies regarding the cause of death. This is when disease was no longer viewed as a condition of the person, but a condition of the organ. He believed if the organs could be corrected or simply cut out, then health would be restored. This has become a central dogma for modern medicine that has remained unchanged to this day. Morgagni's book was 55 years in the making. In it, he did not name any of the disease processes he had seen, but others came along after to give names to the various conditions. When Morgagni died in 1771, he was one of the most renowned physicians in the world. Rudolf Virchow was born in 1821, and he was the first to view disease from a cellular view. Once again, from Newland, quote, Shortly after it was shown that all human tissues and organs are composed of the building blocks called cells, the German pathologist Rudolf Virchow introduced the concept that disease is caused by some pathological change in a previously normal cell. After Morgagni, a sick man was seen as a man in whom a healthy organ had become diseased, and after Virchow, he was a man in whom there were healthy cells that had become diseased. Not only that, but Virchow was able to show that in certain diseases, such as cancer, for example, the sick cell reproduced itself into offspring with the same disease as its parent. His 1858 book, Cellular Pathology, became the Bible of the new medicine, which was now focused on studying the physical and biochemical changes that cause abnormalities and seeking ways to prevent or treat them. Virchow also introduced the notion that many illnesses are caused by social conditions, such as poverty and ignorance. Not content with being what his colleagues called the Pope of German medicine, he became a politically active social reformer as well, famous for such ringing statements as, Physicians are the natural attorneys of the poor. In 1845, Virchow discovered the clinical science of leukemia. Later, he looked at clotting and discovered that sometimes blood clots inappropriately. He termed these clots as thrombus and embolus. Virchow extolled his students when thinking of disease, always think microscopically. This is when medicine entered the world of the invisible and became disconnected from the common man. Just as Virchow sought to teach his students to see and think microscopically, this could be done with the general public if there was any desire to actually educate them and not leave them in the dark. Finally, we will leave this portion with Lister and the rise of the germ theory. Newland again gives us clarity. Quote, Surgeons had long believed that there was no way to lower the approximately 45% mortality rate, almost all of it caused by infection, resulting from any operation they did, including one so simple as amputation of a finger. 
They were convinced that the problem was insurmountable because of the unavoidable entry of surrounding air into the surgical site, with consequent destruction of the tissues by oxidation. Then, in 1865, Joseph Lister of the Glasgow Royal Infirmary placed some pus from the wound infection of one of his patients under a microscope and saw bacteria similar to those that Louis Pasteur had identified in putrefying wine and beer a few days earlier, a few years earlier, sorry. After carrying out experiments in which he found that he could kill the organisms with carbolic acid, Lister used the chemical on a series of patients and lowered his frequency of wound infection to a third of its previous level. In spite of continuing to improve the results of his method, which Lister called antisepsis, he was at first unable to convince the medical world to embrace it, and some 20 years passed before the vigorous campaign of this modest, self-effacing, but indomitable Quaker physician began to make significant headway. When finally accepted, the so-called germ theory revolutionized not only surgery, but all of medical thinking. In Lister's day, surgical infections were common. Keep in mind that most of these surgeries were amputations. Figures showed that 41% of patients died following amputation if the amputation was performed in a hospital with more than 300 beds. In Paris, it was 60%, 46% in Zurich, and 34% in Glasgow. As Lister developed a method to sterilize the wound and the doctor's hands, deaths went down. This led many to conclude that disease was the result of germs, or tiny microscopic pathogenic invaders. Without any intention on Lister's part, this became the beginning of the sterilization theory that if we could just sterilize the world, then we could eliminate all disease. I hope this quick tour gives you some insight into how medicine drifted from the Hippocratic ideals so quickly. Of all things, I would say it is the departure from their ethical code that has made the biggest difference. Many years ago, I heard that they were considering changing the MCAT. It had come to their attention that by accepting only the best students, the quality of medicine was actually dropping precipitously. They knew something was missing, but what could it be? They came to the conclusion that they should add an ethics test because that was the missing ingredient. In the end, they didn't do it because they realized that it would disqualify a large number of their leading candidates. This departure from ethics has not been accidental or unintentional. We've looked at history from what I would call the scientific view, that is to look at it in chronological order. Now let's take a look at what I would call the artistic approach, to start with now and look backwards. One day I was thinking about this and I thought, who's responsible for creating the system we see today? If we look back, when do we see modern medicine in its most infantile stage? That's actually pretty easy, so I bet you can guess who's the father of modern medicine. That's right, J.D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the son of a man who went by the name Dr. Bill Livingston, although the people called him Devil Bill. That was not his real name, of course, and he was not a doctor. He was a snake oil salesman and a grifter. He's quoted as saying that he would cheat his children every chance he got. His reasoning for this was to teach them how to avoid being cheated themselves and to teach them how to cheat others. Coal tar was considered a waste product of the petrochemical industry, but then J.D. Rockefeller discovered a way to use it to make pharmaceuticals. He knew that these pharmaceuticals were, could, were good at reducing and even eliminating symptoms while doing nothing to increase overall health. He then partnered with Frederick Taylor Greene. He was a former Baptist minister who was really not a minister at all, but a professional thief. Together, they came up with the Flexner Report. They paid scientists to simulate research as a false front for a scientific makeover of medicine. They blamed raw milk as the vector for spreading tuberculosis, 
thus eliminating this valuable food source from the American diet. It all culminated with the Ludlow Massacre, a little piece of forgotten history. April 20th, 1914. A miners' uprising due to the deplorable conditions under which they were living led to J.D. Rockefeller Jr. using his connections to call in the Colorado National Guard against the 1,200 people who lived there. 20 people were killed, and 12 of those were children. Five strikers were killed, including the leader, Louis Tikus. The media tried to downplay the events and blame the unions for causing the massacre. The public, however, was not buying it. So, J.D. Rockefeller Sr. went to his PR man and told him to solve it. His PR guy asked him how much he was willing to spend to solve this problem. He said $1 million. That's $26 million in today's dollars. His PR guy said, great, I need you to write me 10 $100,000 checks. He then took these checks to the universities with the most prominent medical schools. He offered each of them a check in exchange for putting a Rockefeller representative on the board of directors. Remember, the Flexner Report came out in 1910, the same year as Dee Dee Palmer's famous text. So a Rockefeller representative would help these schools to survive the Rockefeller-instigated purging of the medical schools. Of course they took the money. What they didn't know was that Rockefeller had recently discovered the production of pharmaceuticals made from petrochemical waste products. The part of the refining process that he had previously paid to dispose of was now the basis of a whole new profit stream, and he intended to maximize the profits. Rockefeller is famous for saying that competition is a sin, so it's not hard to imagine his vision. Over 100 years later, we see it playing out exactly how he envisioned it, only now the government and all of its overseers are also part of the system, and they are also on the take as well. The amazing thing to me is how none of this was driven or directed by science at all. It wasn't for lack of ability. William Osler was alive and only shortly past his prime at this time. William Osler is probably one of the top five physicians of all time, and he was one of the six physicians who started the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in the German tradition. But his name has been forgotten, simply because he failed to produce a working flu vaccine during the 1918 flu pandemic. More to the point, he publicly stated that the reason for his failure was due to the impossibility of the objective. That's not a good narrative in today's environment, so he was simply made to disappear. To summarize, what we find is a system of healthcare that began with the general, seeing the whole individual and viewing sickness as a disorder of the organism. Slowly, over time, this morphed to produce a more narrow focus, whether it is Virchow in the cell as the cause of disease or Lister in the germ theory, from there, the focus moved towards surgery, how the surgeon could operate, and how the surgeries might become more effective. This is the process by which the Hippocratic physician was lost. Combine that with the slow erosion of an ethical code of conduct, and you have modern medicine as we see it today. I hope you enjoyed this quick tour of medical history. It was very much condensed from what I originally intended. If you'd like to learn more, and all the details, and the people I left out, you can check out the video lecture series by Professor Sherwin B. Newland. His course, Doctors, The History of Scientific Medicine Revealed Through Biography, is available from the teaching company and their great courses collection. No profession is perfect, and the scientific path of innovation is often messy. The Hippocratic physicians recognize this fact, and that's the reason for their strong ethical code. Aristotle's view was that you cannot espouse a philosophy until you first define the ethic. I've often thought of this in terms of chiropractic, as I've never heard anyone define the ethics of chiropractic. Nonetheless, Allopathic medicine, in divorcing itself from the Hippocratic ethic, has also divorced itself from its philosophy. 
This is why it's so difficult to define the philosophy of medicine. I realize this is probably a bit academic, but I think it's worth understanding as we're often called upon to explain the difference between allopathic medicine and chiropractic. I hope this gives you a background understanding of the history of medicine to aid you in this process. Next week, we'll have a new guest and a new topic, so I hope you'll join us for that. As always, I hope you've had the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Oh, my God.